everybody, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Today I want to expand on the video that I published earlier this week, talk about my Fast Company piece, and talk about how Gen Z is redefining job satisfaction, and talk about financial nihilism as well. So I also am going to include some other things that I did this week. So I interviewed Lynn Alden with Public, I did some stuff with Bloomberg Opinion, of course, love them did an interview with Yahoo Finance and then also went on ABC News. I'll be on CNBC and CBS tomorrow as well and was also on a radio show for SiriusXM earlier this week and I'll have all those links in the newsletter kyla.substack.com. If you want to go ahead and hit subscribe, uh, that really helps. Share it with a friend who also likes the economy and or the stock market and or these deep philosophical things that these videos often turn into. But yeah, I really like this comic from Calvin and Hobbes. If people sat outside and looked at the stars each night, I'll bet they'd live a lot differently. How so? Well, when you look into infinity, you realize that there are more important things than what people do all day. So the evolution of work across generational divides. So oftentimes other generations will say about generations, uh, this generation doesn't care about anything. It's bemoaned by each generation about the one younger than them, usually meant to express the idea that the youth are drying up without any sort of passion behind them. Or if they do have passion, it's the wrong kind of passion. And if they aren't drying up, they're being too loud, too obnoxious, not caring about the right thing. Generational tensions are a constant. Experience, which usually follows age, is one of the great definers of our lives. As we get older, we take on more of the world and the world puts more on us, you know, duh, of course. But what these experiences are composed of and how we share them matters. Generation Z, born between the late 1990s and the mid-2010s, has had a lot of experience. The world has put a lot on them, on everyone, over the past few decades. Everyone is going through it. <laughs> Generation Z's parents were coming of age during the Cold War, the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, Watergate, and the development of the World Wide Web, an era defined by immense social, cultural, and political change. Gen Z's grandparents lived through the Great Depression, World War II, the Holocaust, the Korean War, and so much more. For Gen Z, the oldest were born, like me, during the dot-com bubble, and a few years later, we experienced 9-11, and a few years after that, we experienced the global financial crisis, and Arab Spring, the Syrian civil war, and a few years after that, the global pandemic, and the storming of the US Capitol, all amplified by social media. Gen Z has lived through as many as three big economic downturns, despite only being alive for about 25 years or so. These crises occurred during their formative years, which shaped how they interact with the world, work, others, and themselves. They've watched the American dream essentially rot before their eyes as higher education becomes a luxury good, a housing crisis exacerbates the cost of living, all backdrop by political stagnation and rapid, perhaps even too rapid, technological advancement. So we have all of that going on, and the question that many ask is, well, millennials were also raging at the world, felt robbed, etc., and we are still here, so why would Gen Z or Gen Alpha or anybody else actually change the world? A question that seems silly to ask, why would people ever do things differently? It's because it gets to the point where you have to. It's always dangerous to say that it's different this time, but I do think that there is something different this time, and it's all based in relationships. And I want to highlight that although this video, this essay, focuses on Gen Z, the lessons apply for generations younger and older than them, with corporatism, wherein corporations are ruling our world, as being replaced by some path of independence. There is frustration with the 9 to 5, where it's just not enough, where work is not fulfilling the promise that it did for the boomers and beyond. A starter salary is not what it used to be, and the way that we work and live has had to evolve around that. This generation has to go about things differently. Gen Z seems to be searching for broader freedoms and a world dominated by corporations and advertisement, and also, if you have a feeling, just medicate it. And 
and also there's student loans and a housing crisis, and we have this hyper-individualism that I talked about in the previous video, and also the earth is burning. And so some would say, well, just give up, but all you can do is try and save it. Everything is a bit until it isn't. People will say this generation doesn't want to do anything anymore, which is kind of true, honestly. You know, maybe that's even valid, but it's not that Generation Z doesn't want to do anything anymore. It's just they don't want to do things in the way that it's always been done. It's clearly like not working, right? The search for freedom, the trend towards some aspect of nihilism, the climate crisis and broader influence of corporate ideology have all influenced how Gen Z works, but there's other things too. Economic downturns, the cost of higher education, the crisis in housing and the stagnation of work has all shaped about how, it has to shape how people think about career paths. But first, you know, what happened? What shaped Gen Z? So the dot-com bubble. The dot-com bubble was one of the first time that retail investors got in on the markets in a really big way. And it was also one of the first really big spectacular blow-ups that harmed a lot of people in a really big way. And there was, of course, crises that preceded it. We loved a good crisis across the world. The Great Depression of 1929, the oil embargo of 1973, the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s. But those were shaped by the decisions of governments and banks, whereas the internet crash felt much more localized, shaped by at-home speculation and venture capital mismanagement, which is still going on. We love how that continues to happen. An early part of Gen Z's identity was shaped by speculation and excess. The dot-com era was defined by big bets and little backing with froth-framing dreams. There were sky-high valuations were the norm, based on future earnings rather than actual financial performance. Sounds familiar. A thematic that is pervasive in the markets across all of time, as we saw most recently with the crypto bubble and the aping of GME and AMC. Whether it is tulip bubbles or internet companies, the same sort of energy persisted. People wanted in, they wanted money, and they wanted it now. Being born into a time of market failure is very formative. Most of Gen Z was too young to remember the bankruptcies and the financial losses, but indirectly influenced their attitudes towards investing and thought patterns around hype and speculation. These unprofitable internet companies that raised millions of dollars define a time of superfluity that only would only get amplified in the coming years as a much bigger financial crisis shortly followed. The 2008 great financial crisis, this was tough. This is really tough. 2008 was much more impactful for most people in this generation. A lot of kids, myself included, saw their caregivers battle against uncontrollable economic forces. I was about 10 years old when this happened. You know, there were job losses, foreclosures on the home, a decimation of household wealth. Almost no one was left unscathed except for the bank owners that caused it. For the younger generations, this impacted so many things. Millennials were, rightly so, very furious. Economic stability, job satisfaction, job stability, financial stability, all of that was a big question mark. Everyone had just watched a system fail, but in a way that they couldn't really comprehend. Watching your parents hold their heads in their hands at the dining room table as they try to figure out how to pay the mortgage that month is an image that is seared into the minds of many. Also impacted how younger generations viewed institutions. There's general skepticism around them. This would be the second time in 10 years that they and everyone else watched things implode. It was a systemic failure that resulted in economic inequality and social disparities, and it didn't seem like the consequences were there for those that caused it. This was the golden age of grift. It had begun and the first rug had been pulled. We were living in a world of fraud and deceit. Around the same time, social media started to pop up. Everything was broadcasted to the world, and for the first time ever, feelings became somewhat fungible, an interchangeable asset that could be traded for likes and retweets. The younger generation has grown up without many physical third spaces, a place to go that isn't work or home or school. The online world became the solution for that, a way to find and build community in a seemingly desolate landscape of individualism. 
So people started posting. But that era was also defined by the rising power of corporations. There were several laws passed in the 2010s that ended up turning the United States into three corporations and a transshoot. This era gave a lot of freedom to advertisers. Uh, this era gave a lot of freedom to corporations, but also gave a lot of power to advertisers. Advertisement became the economic model for the 2010s. Our entire nervous system became a profit machine for anyone that could serve a fast-paced, pleasure-producing candy dream. Eyeballs became monetization tools, which created a strange layer of interaction between the consumer and the advertiser. You are really nothing but clicks in the grand scheme of making money, and they are going to make you click somehow. Of course, all the buildup from the dot-com bubble to the 2008 crisis was exacerbated by the pandemic of 2020. For the Zoomers that were still in school, online learning replaced in-person lectures and shifted socialization. For the Zoomers that had just begun their careers, like myself, work from home became the really the only option if you were part of the laptop class. And of course, death was the only constant during a time of immense uncertainty. This shifted how a lot of people thought about work and life. People that we titled as essential workers still had to go into work, those in service, medical, transportation, agriculture, etc. Everything that was wrong from before the pandemic only got worse during the pandemic. For the past 40 years, we have seen productivity increase, but wages have remained relatively stagnant. The minimum wage hasn't picked up at all. The cost of living has skyrocketed, especially during the recent inflation crisis. And then we have all watched this horrific treatment of essential workers who were the people that kept food on the table, who worked in the meatpacking plants, who staffed the hospitals for those that were sick. We all bore witness to the eventual degradation of that treatment. Nurses didn't have enough PPE and still had to, you know, they had to wear trash bags. Factories were overrun with COVID, yet workers were still forced to come into work. The teachers tried to keep kids safe in a world that seemed increasingly built to kill them and countless other examples. All of that is going to shape how anybody thinks about work. When we started getting to the other side of the pandemic, the narrative quickly became about getting people back into the office, the labor shortage, the need for more workers now. We never really stopped to grieve. And when I say that, people kind of chuckle because they're like, how could we stop? We all bore witness to something that was very painful. Some of us were on the front lines of it in a way that I can't even imagine how impactful that was. It all became about getting the economy booming again. For education, there's a lot of gaps in the steps between education and work for both trade school and university education. For trade school graduates, there's a tendency for employers to not want to train employees up because of the cost, along with a myriad of other problems with getting new people into trade roles. For university graduates, there's no real guarantee that you're going to find a job, especially not a job in the major that you studied. In the United States, healthcare and benefits are tied to employment, which is kind of silly. Um, there is no real safety net. If you stumble, you can stumble pretty hard, and it's freaking scary. Traditional work hasn't really worked over the past decade or so, hence the rise of the gig economy and other income streams to try and plug the economic gap. People are trying to put together puzzle pieces that never really fit quite right. There are a lot of other things that influence how we interact with each other, but in recent years, the domination of brand has been a big one. The rise of direct-to-commerce, or the rise of direct-to-consumer and e-commerce in the 2010s really shaped how people consumed, how they participated in online spaces. The puzzle pieces were what you were wearing, but also why you were wearing what you were wearing. The economy is built around consumers. Consumer spending is 70% of GDP, meaning that's the core driver of how the economy moves and grooves. And of course, the consumer is designed to consume. 
We live in a world driven by fast fashion and nanosecond trend cycles. Because of the focus on consumption across most aspects of our lives, it ends up being a defining feature of the younger generation because it's subculture on top of subculture, a way to identify with several different groups simultaneously. In the era of the internet, you can be anything and everything and also nothing. And of course, is it that way for everybody? I hope that people realize when I say things, that's generalizing, that's how we have to speak. But there is hyper online aspects to existence that influence how and what we purchase. But this freedom can end up being really restrictive. If you can be everything, if you can completely define yourself, but only through the lens of the content you consume, who are you? As social media demands a curated, although not necessarily perfect, self-image, are we our selfies? And do our selfies represent us at all? Online spaces have really become where we hang out. Reddit, Twitter, rest in peace, Instagram, YouTube, Tumblr, pre-Yahoo acquisition. You are what you do on the internet, at least to a certain extent, which is good. I certainly love the online world, but it also creates a sense of individualism because we're never really together. We are always kind of talking to figments of our imagination. This is a thread of hyper-individualism, something that the United States was already really well known for. We crave community and online spaces offer aspects of that, but not in the way that we might need it to. That's shaped how younger generations interact and talk to others with a preference for digital interface versus actual face-to-face. And that shapes how we interact with ourselves. Politics is a game show, reality is entertainment, Baldurard watches with intensity, the panopticon of observation, vulnerability is our greatest asset, and our greatest risk. The youth are growing up in a time of political minefields. Their attention spans are destroyed, but that is because, of course, the younger generation is exposed to things that are, you know, horrible and wondrous, all in the span of like 30 seconds to one minute. How can anybody sort of retain information in that environment? As I talked about in the previous video, this constant scrolling tells us that nothing is really worth anything. And if we keep on scrolling, maybe we will feel normal. And algorithms end up building themselves around us. Algorithmic identity is a big part of all of this. How are we defined by what we consume online? And we are defined what we consume online because algorithms decide that for us. When you watch blood spill from a fellow human out of the screen from your magic glow box, it creates a sense of distance. And we're always pixels, as I talked about, away from disaster. Yet there's this gap there of how do we even begin to cross it. And this is a function of the broader attention economy too, where everything that happens is the opportunity for you to become a star. It's all eyeballs for monetization. Because we are all constantly exposed to horrors beyond our wildest dreams, we tend to treat the images of suffering as doing something about the suffering that we are bearing witness to. And that's the thing about younger generations. They've seen suffering images every day that are similar to ones of the Holocaust and the war that shook Susan Sontag so hard she ended up writing a book denouncing photography entirely. The younger generation has grown up in a time of economic turmoil. There's been a, rede a redefinition of the standard of living. We are so interconnected and we are still like so alone. Um, when we think about how the younger generation goes into the workforce, they'll have to go in with purpose uh, because, because that's it, you know. They are more open-minded and I think more accepting and they have steadfast values. And the focus is on passion and fulfillment. And I, I personally am at the point where it's like, that should be something that is available, but it's very difficult to achieve that. 
How do you find what you're passionate about? How do you find a job that allows you to explore that passion? These are questions I just, I don't have the answer to. Um, but I think they're good things to think about. You know, people ask what this revolution will look like, and I don't know the answer to that exactly. It'd be silly if I did, and if I did say I did know. But I, I do think, you know, the way that we think about work is evolving. Whether that be work from home, or dumb terms like quiet quitting, side jobs, or people giving themselves space to find what they care about. You know, we need to support people. There's this weird, weird American thing, and you see it in my comments, uh, where people are like, you must suffer. <laughs> Why? Why? I personally believe in social safety nets and support for all workers and people is how we reignite passion and th therefore the world. Perhaps that's naive, but perhaps it really is different this time. Funnily enough, I really like this Tumblr post as a kind of a reminder as I'm talking about these heavier things. Life is so much better when you stop hyper-analyzing yourself and realize you can't hate yourself into being better and you just have to accept you're weird and kind of effed up slightly, but it's not that deep. Just live. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Uh, this is Kyla.subtech.com. Also, the podcast, let's appreciate on TikTok and Instagram and threads and kind of ironic as I say that, but hope you all are doing okay and I'll talk to you very soon.